uh, pronouns that are used in chapter one. There's a lot of them and they. You notice that, uh, especially in the second half of the chapter, um, starting verse 18 down through there, they did this and them. And then look at the start of chapter two, and it becomes you. Why? Why the difference? Who's the them and they, and who are the you that he's talking there? Anybody got a thought on that, or what? Why you would change? Why you would change that? Yeah, Josh. So in chapter one, the them appears in verse five, which is connecting what he's talking about in the Gentiles, and then verse six says, "You are among them." Then Okay, so possibly the Jews and the Gentiles, the them and, and the you, is one possibility there. Other thoughts on that? Yes. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God was revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Okay, okay, so that's more of a generality of talking about them being the bad people, being. The ones that are violating these things. Yeah, Alan? I would say also the self-righteous are, are the ones who point to those of you who would not be able to even consider tolerating what's going on here. You have a problem, too, and I want to address that. The self-righteous being the you? Okay. Yeah, so there's a, a good, good thoughts, good comments on that. And I think just something to, to think about or, or to try to dissect that a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, no. Also in verse 20, he said, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So it's anyone that doesn't perceive the righteousness of God and who he is Okay, and who would that apply to? Everyone. I think in this context, it's probably hitting a little bit harder at you guys, just a little bit, because there's a few things in there, like like that statement, kind of is more applicable to the Gentiles. They didn't have the law, but they had something, right? What did the Gentiles have? Were they just lost... I mean, the Jews had the law to follow, and that was their plan, their way to salvation. What did the Gentiles have? What did you guys have before the law came, or even after the law came? What did you have? They had a conscience. They had a conscience, and which is that, yes? Yeah. Exactly. 
Now, we're going to get into that verse a little bit more, because I think that's a little more detailed about something, that he's, a point that he's making with, with the law about some. Uh, but it's a good, good, good thought. So, did, they, did the Jews... Go ahead. Okay, let me ask you this question. What did Abraham have to do to be saved? Did he have the, the law? Did he have? He did not. Okay, what did Abraham's brother need to do? What did Abraham's nephew need to do? What did Abraham's father need to do? They had sort of the law, but not the law. Okay. Uh, they obeyed God. Right. And uh, what God required of them, they did. And that's the same thing the Gentiles had. Although they chose not to, like so many uh, have. And even the Jews chose not to from a lot of things. Uh, exactly. Same but the law was separate for them. But the Gentiles still had what you might call the law. So they had a way to be saved? Absolutely, they did. And we see Right. So you think about that promise to Abraham and how many years they were living under that promise without the law. And the promise jumped over that law to Jesus Christ for everyone. Now, in the meantime, there was a law that came along to show some examples, some foreshadowing, some, uh, you know, of what, what this, how this law was going to work, how this salvation was going to come about. And that law existed for a period of time for a chosen group of people to, to show God's power and His glory. Yeah, and uh, talking about the day chapter 1, verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue, but also prove. So they, they, is, they knew God's righteous decree. So if it's, as Rissa said, um, ingrained in them that uh, insolent, arrogant, boastful, uh, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, <coughs> Somebody that lives that life has got to be live in fear of everything. Retaliation. They have to know that is not uh, that's not a good way to live, just intrinsically. But it, they, they do God's promise to create somehow. Uh, just thought I'd point that out. Very good. Yes. They were along to themselves, along to themselves when it was written on their heart. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Paul is writing this letter, and when you write a letter to somebody, and you have to try to anticipate maybe some things that they're going to be thinking about your letter, right? Because 
you're not having a conversation and I say something to you and you get to respond and then I say, oh, you're thinking this way, let me, let me answer that. And it's like, oh, you're going a different direction, let me answer that. So Paul's writing the letter, it's like, I wonder what they might think or respond or argue about my letter. So he has to address those things. So what types of things is he addressing in that? Um, so we're getting into verses 12 through 16, one of the things that potentially they could say that would set them apart from the Gentiles is that, well, we have the law. The Gentiles don't have the law like we do. So he, he's addressing those. And, and then in, later in the chapter, uh, the latter verses, 17 through 24, uh, he's saying again, you're indicted for your sin and your guilt before God. Uh, then the latter party turns to that question of circumcision. And I think just repeating this cycle over and over throughout this chapter, it's like, you're going to argue we have the law. You're going to argue we have circumcision. And he's tearing all those down and saying, that makes you no better than the rest of the people. So he's dealing with, I think, potential objections. So what are, I mean, the Jews, in verses 14 through 16, he's making this argument again, that you want to say that Jews have some advantage because they have the law. But what about the Gentiles who don't have a law, who still by their conscience may keep the law? Now, that's back to Lisa's point when we're talking about they're actually doing the law. So what is his, what is his point here, his argument, uh, in saying that, you know, what about a Jew that actually keeps the law? Let me go ahead and read these verses, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, and according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So he's making this point, you have a law, but you're not keeping it. The Gentiles don't have a law, but they are keeping it. But neither one of those is holding water completely because you're, you guys are breaking the law. You have the law, but you're not keeping it perfectly. You're breaking the law. You guys don't have the law, but you're also doing things following the law. Is that going to save you? No, because even in that, even in that context, the Gentiles haven't kept every part of the law either. So I think what he's saying is, if, if it's okay for you, you have a law which you can break and still be justified. Does that, is that, I mean, is that accurate? They're like, yeah, we have the law, therefore we're, we're saying, even though we don't keep it perfectly, that's okay, because we have the law. Well, then he goes to the Gentiles and he says, well, does that make you a law keeper? Okay. Well, then... Doesn't it make these guys 
law keepers as well because they're also keeping it all and they don't even have it. So his argument, I think, is look, look at the absurdity here. You've got a law and you're not keeping it. They don't have a law, but they are keeping as much as you are. They're not keeping all of it, but neither are you. So doesn't that make them saved? Does that, am I making sense with that? Does that argument? Yes. Yes, if make that clear. He's not saying you guys are all right. He's saying you're as much all right as they are <laughs> because you're keeping some laws. And you guys, you're keeping some laws. You're breaking some of the laws. Yes, Lisa. Okay, so that's, that's an interesting point, where, and I agree we're going to talk about that some more and we get into this, how that, how that fits with both laws, how it all fits together. Other thoughts on that? So if, if you having a law breaking it doesn't make you a law breaker, them having a law and keeping it doesn't make them a law keeper. Yes? Exactly. I can almost see them. They're behind you, Greg. All the Romans, hold on one second. All the Romans uh, together reading this letter. You know, hey, we got this letter. And they're in a, in a group together and they're divided, just like you guys are. <laughs> and Paul starts reading this and he starts reading about how they did this and you know, they are this and they. You guys are just shaking your heads and Exactly. You tell him, Paul, and then he gets to chapter two. He's like, "Oh, well," and then you guys are like, "Yeah, that's right." You tell him, Paul. <laughs> but the point of this book is to bring this together. The the two groups. You guys are the same. You both need Jesus. And that's what he's going to point out, huh? Yeah, and he, he says uh, the secret would be would be judged. And it might be in every deed and judgment with every secret thing and every good and evil. So that's the level playing field. God's gonna bring every secret thing into the end being there, and it doesn't matter what you what law you come by. Okay. yes. I just wondering, does this have anything to do with, with current circumstances for Paul? Paul's been all over the world. 
preaching to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have been receiving the, the word, the, the gospel. The Jews at the same time have been struggling against it. Could that be involved in what Paul is dealing with in this uh, section? I mean, at all. Dealing with other situations and Jews that he has run into? I think that it has a lot of influence on that. And think about who Paul was. Which, which side of this argument was Paul on before the fish <laughs> He would have been in this camp, and he was very much in this camp. Uh, yeah, um, So, it also, the, at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, he's talking about you past judgment. So, he's, he's switching right to from condemning those guys to condemning us over here. Um, and, and he says, or do you, verse 4, or do you show contempt? For the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance. So I think he's, he's partly wanting to show that you're both condemned, but more than that, he's wanting to show you're both recipients of God's kindness. Okay, very good. That's exactly right. We have to... I think in some sense we have to break it down before we can get to that point. Otherwise, why would you guys need Jesus? You've got the law. You have a system. If you don't keep it perfectly, you have a system to take care of that, right? So why Jesus? Over here. I, I, I think in verse 12, we have, he's beginning to head toward the topic. And he's going to say more clearly and more distinctly. <clears throat> talked about for all who have sinned with the law and without the law. And so they're thinking, okay, those who have sinned, they're failing to see that they're the ones that have sinned. Okay. And later he's going to say for all have sinned. Right. And then bring it all together. But, uh, you know, you've got two different groups and both of them saying, well, we're good, but you're not. Right. Right, so he's trying to make it pretty clear. He's making it very clear. Very clear that we're all in the same boat together. So, a uh, comment on the verse 15. He talks about the uh, conscience bearing witness. And I know maybe get kind of caught up in that or whatever. Um, I think a misinterpretation is for me to say, well, whatever you do, as long as you have a good conscience about it, then you're fine. Uh, because this is a this isn't going to stand up in the final judgment because he points that out in the next verse that God's going to make it clear in, you know, in, in the final judgment but your conscience can't approve of you how? well if, if you're you know doing the right thing your conscience is, is going to agree with that and when you're doing the wrong thing, your conscience is going to say, hey, you know, you know better than that. Yes, go ahead. Um, I've seen several writers do whatever you express, um, particularly the first I ever saw do it was C.S. Lewis. But he took a compilation of laws and civilizations that we can find, and all of them had common elements, like not to murder, not to steal, and things of that nature. And his point was that God has left a witness of himself. 
seems pretty obvious that that is the case. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, but nor is it a defense to stand before God and say, well, you know, I did that man in good conscience. I just want to repeat this. Yeah, the conscience, together with knowledge, we always say that. When we say conscience, that's what comes to your mind, so what's the knowledge here? It goes all the way back to verse 20 in chapter 1. The, the Gentiles see the Lord, and, and that, that's the conscience. They, they look at the Jews and see them, but they're kind of adversarial with the Jews and vice versa. Uh, don't appreciate each other much, but, but the Gentiles see God, and that's, I think, what's being talked about. Back there, that's 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 what convicts them. That's what gives them their conscience is is his evidence in creation. You know, I, I think I, I used to just think, well, they just watch the Jews and just follow what the Jews did. Right. I don't, I don't think that was right thinking. I think they they thought they they see the divinity of God and are convicted to do right. Uh, maybe maybe what the Jews did helped some, but okay. just. Exactly. Just throwing that in there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back up to where Brad was when he's talking about the kindness of God. It, he really expresses that what God's kindness is, you need to understand the kindness of God versus just being good people. His kindness leads you to repentance understanding the blood of Christ that you are under. And then when you get down here to the conscious, he, he says that um, according, it is according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Right. So it isn't just a conscious of Jimmy Cricket, you know, like right. 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 the little lady yes. the little yes. devil on your shoulder. Yes. What do you think? Uh, it, your conscious of Jesus Christ and his blood shed, which will bring you to the kindness of God, which is repentance. Exactly. Yeah, I see this argument on conscience being like the lowest bar, and none of us can agree with that. Um, you can read the Sermon on the Mount and see there are all sorts of things that I understand that are wrong that my conscience would not have condemned me for. But even if we throw that out and just judge myself by my conscience, I'm not going to pass. Right. Uh, well said. Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, another passage we all know about the conscience is, of course, Paul when he talks about, you know, I stand for you day and I've done everything in good conscience. I've always misunderstood that. And maybe some of you have to. What, what was he saying he did in good conscience? First thing I always think, oh, he persecuted Christians and I did it in good conscience. That's not at all what I'm saying. He's talking to the Jews. For him to say to the Jews, well, I persecuted Christians in a good conscience, they would have said, Amen, brother, you did exactly the right thing. That's not what he's saying there at all. He's saying, what I've done in good conscience is admit that Jesus Christ is the king. <laughs> and that's when they want to stone him because they don't agree with that. So it's funny how we use that. Yeah, even Paul, you know, he killed Christians and put them in jail and whatever, and he did it in a good conscience. And he said so right here. That's not what he's saying. Anyway, other thoughts on that, comments? Appreciate your comments on that. Okay. Uh, so what about verse 13? Doers of the law will be justified. 
Uh, it's also back in verse 10. It's also back in verse 7. A similar idea. Are those the same? Or is he saying something different here? Um, doers of the law will be justified. Is that possible? Is that only for the Jews then? Um, how does he mean that? He says it's the doers who will be justified, not just the hearers. Or is he calling them all hearers? I'd say, I get not here. He'd say, you all have heard the law, and you might claim that you're doers of the law, but you're merely hearers of the law because you're not following it all completely or totally. Yes? I'm constantly maybe surprised, but maybe not surprised at, at how much the Jews look at the law as God, not as God's God. And so in their pursuit to follow the law, once again, what Jesus was showing was that they missed a lot of points of the law. And kind of putting all of their effort into the letter of the law and kind of missed uh, some of the reasons that God gave that law. So I can see, you know, the doers of the law, they may feel like they're the doers of the law, and that Paul's going to point out that they're actually not. Exactly. So if you were to talk to any Jewish person at that time, or rabbi, or, you know, one of the Pharisees, or whatever, what would have been the... And ask them, well, what, what do you do with the law? You know, how does that work? What, what would they have thought of the law? It's like, can you, can you keep the law? They're like, well, yeah, yeah, you can keep the law. Can you keep it perfectly? No, we can't keep it perfectly, but we, we keep the law. And what's the point with that? You know, why do you keep the law? Well, that's, that's what salvation is. Yes. That kind of makes me wonder, um, sometimes don't fall into the same trap. Why are we students of the Bible? Why do we love God's Word? Is it to know the Word itself? To have memorized Scripture and know how many times I can find this particular point in the Scripture? Or how many times I have read this particular book, or how, like, how many times this verse shows up over and over in this particular place, or is it to know God Himself and to know what He wants us to do? Very good. Let's get into that a little bit more. What is, and I want to point out here, and so get shitty thinking. I think the concept is the same. Under the law. All right, so you talk to the Jews, they would tell you, well, we have to keep the law. Well, I can't do it quite perfectly, but there's provisions in the law. If I don't do it perfectly, I do these other things, and then I become perfectly keeping the law, right? Because I can kill a goat, you know, or a bird, or whatever the sacrifice thing was for this particular thing, a bull. And that takes care of that. But think about, think about how that would... Let's go, let's go to Paul. Paul was a Jew. He was one of you guys. And was he just an ordinary Jew? No, Paul was... He, I think he had a plaque on his wall, like Jew of the Year. You know, he got awarded that one time. Because 
he was the most zealous of the Jews. Why did he change his mind and now tell these Jews that the law won't save you? Why won't that law save you guys? What, what changed in Paul? What happened to Paul that made him change his mind? Jesus happened. Now, did somebody sit down with Paul and say, Paul, let's look. Let's look here in the book of Isaiah. I want to study it with you, okay? Now, look here. It's telling you that the Messiah is coming and that, you know, Jesus is the one. And Paul's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why. So he changes his mind. No, it didn't work for Paul. But because he denied that that was going to happen, that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. What changed his mind? He saw Jesus. And it's like, ding, ding, ding. I need to go back and reevaluate everything that I've read in the law with this concept that Jesus does actually exist. He's saying to those people, Jesus exists, therefore, your law can't possibly save you. Otherwise, why do we need Jesus? What, what would be the point of Jesus? If their law could save, why would you need Jesus? You wouldn't need Jesus. Yes? Hebrews, we read the sacrifices were offered year after year, but it didn't save them. That it was Jesus' one sacrifice for all time that really did sanctify the sinners. And there's just so many, that's what the whole is for. So, what did Jesus have to do with the salvation of those people? From years ago. What did Jesus have to do with the salvation of Noah, Abraham, or any of those people that we have listed, the, uh, any of the righteous people? What did Jesus have to do with any of that? His blood goes backward and forward, not just the point of time that he died upon the cross. So he died for those from Adam's time to our time and beyond. Okay, so the Jews were told to offer sacrifices and you know, kill these animals and do these things. Did that save them? Okay, now we might get into semantics or whatever in terminology. But it was the blood of Jesus. And maybe the easiest way to look at that is with God, there is no such thing as time. Time doesn't matter. There's sin and there's righteousness. And those that sin need Jesus. And he's going to die. His blood is going to cover those sins of those that are obedient to that today, tomorrow, for us, because we're in time. We're, you know, we're time beings. We are in this time thing. You know, I, I see God as being kind of beyond the time thing. But that blood and the obedience is going to save people. People long ago, people tomorrow, people today. So what did they do long ago? They were saved by the blood of Jesus from long ago. Why? Or how? By being obedient to what the Savior wants you to do. So Abraham, you know, what was, what was the, you know, it was counted as righteousness. What, what was counted as righteousness? 
Belief. Belief, which Abraham got a message. God said, you need to back up and move. And Abraham said, wow, I believe you. But I'm going to stay here and work on my garden. No, the belief was, hey, pack up and move. So did his, did his obedience save him? Well, yeah, he needed to do that because he believed in the one that could save him and wanted to do what that one wanted him to do. Is that what you want to do? I believe that Jesus Christ can save me. That he has, his blood covers my sins. Therefore, you know what? I want to do the best I can to serve him. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, I'm gonna, first of all, I'm going to look at this thing that we have called the Bible because Jesus had some things written down there and it tells us what he wants. So I'm going to try to do those things so that I can earn my salvation? Absolutely not. I want to do the best I can to serve the one that has saved me. Yes. And hopefully, hopefully with God's grace and help, if we do that, that's how other people see Jesus. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. Um, but we are the way, hopefully, people see Jesus today as we live that Exactly. Yeah, so others can see that. Comments on that. If, if the Jewish law could save anyone, why did Jesus have to die? He didn't. But Paul thought that before he saw Jesus. But once he saw Jesus, it became clear, why in the world, why is there a Jesus? Well, there's obviously a need and a reason for that. Let's go back and look at this law again and see where I messed up and see where Jesus comes into this picture. Um, So their idea of keeping the law pretty well, of keeping the law well enough, was the wrong concept. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. Well, you say you're a doer of the law, but if you messed up in one area, you messed up the law. There's no going back. Once you've broken any part of the law, it's done. Even if you keep it perfectly from there on, it's done. It's the same for us today if we try to look at our salvation in a law method. I need to keep it perfectly. Well, I messed up. But if I keep it perfectly from now on, or if I can figure out exactly which way to turn here, which thing to say here, to do it exactly right, I can get, I can be saved. No, I'm saved. And now I'm going to look at this, what Jesus wants me to do, and I'm going to try to do it the best I can. That's a different concept than trying to work it to reach salvation. It's not a commodity. I'll say some more about that in a second. The eternal God manifested himself in the flesh and stepped into time for a little bit so that we could see exactly what that looks like. So anytime we need to know what it looks like, we need to go back to the God that stepped into time to show us what it looks like because 
Salvation isn't just a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of keeping ourselves from the world. And so we have to step into the time under his blood. And that and that's what it looks like. So anytime we need to know what that looks like, we need to go to Jesus and see if our lives line up with the, the eternal God that stepped into time. Exactly. Yes. I haven't thought through this analogy 100%, but it's kind of like if oral hygiene um, would keep us from having cavities, you know, once I have a cavity, I could brush my teeth a hundred times a day. That is not going to solve the issue of my cavity. I've got a hole in my tooth. And so doing the same, the right things more, it still doesn't solve my problem. So I don't know if that quite works, but that's where I it, it fits with the same type of thing. The law, once you've broken it, you can't be saved by it. So it won't do it. Salvation, uh, Brad over here. Salvation is not a commodity. Does that make sense? Uh, some would say the, the commoditization of salvation is something you're trying to sell. And you can, you can attain it or purchase it or work for it and then hopefully get it. And I, I've gained it. And if it was a commodity that could be you know, distributed, then, I mean, God could just distribute the commodity and everybody, I'll give it a little bit. It'd be like coffee, you know. It's, I've got my coffee, and I worked for my coffee, and it's now mine. And now I'm worried that somebody might take my coffee away. But it's not a commodity. It is a relationship that we are in with Jesus, with the Savior. Yes, Luke? Yeah, you could mention now the individual aspect of it. Break one law in our law breaker. I think it's full here. Because the other element, too, which is zooming out to the bigger picture of all of Israel, right? Because Israel's mission was to be a light to the Gentiles, the light to the rest of the nations. I he kind of almost trolls them a little bit later in chapter two, and he starts saying, Okay, uh, you guys have received instruction from the law, you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, educator of the senseless, teacher of the That's their mission. Did they, how did that work out? Go back and read the prophets. And then he goes in verse 24, so then he goes out and blasphemed. So it, did, it didn't work. So the problem is that how is it working out for us? It's not working out. So we need a new plan. I guess I think that bigger picture has to be forced. Exactly. So yeah, those later verses, he's talking about how they, uh, what they were supposed to be and what they were, how, how they were supposed to be the light and how it didn't work out that way at all. Uh, in fact, they're blaspheming God because of you guys, because of, your, because of what you're doing. And they're almost like making fun of you. You guys have made a mockery of what God was trying to show the world in uh, Lisa right here in the middle. Right. Yeah. But they claim when they say that Jesus forgives sin, they themselves either want to forgive others or they love themselves when they sin, instead of seeking the one who loves and forgives. Yeah, and that is a common 
thought, I mean, a common way to look at it, and I call that the light switch mentality. You know, you're, you're trying really hard to do it, and it's like, oh no, I sinned. I've lost my salvation. I, my light switch is off. And if I do all the right things, which, which I'm going to say is really interesting, we, may, we take the law, we'll call it the New Testament, we'll call it the law, and if we want to call it that, we say, well, we have to keep this law to be saved, to get our life switch on. But we can't do it perfectly. Everybody knows we can't. So when I mess up, oh, my life switch is off. But then we turn around and say, well, how do you get your life switch back on? Well, there's this other set of rules to get your life switch back on. And you have to keep them perfectly. You have to repent and confess and do these things, and then your life switch will be back on. So isn't it interesting that we, we substitute one set of laws that we can't keep perfectly, but in order to get back in the good graces, we have another set of laws that we must keep perfectly. Uh, well, what if we break that? Is there another set of laws then that we have to keep perfectly? And is, where, where, does, where do you go from there? Yes. Well, I was saying what she said. She said that both of those Other thoughts. So it's often compared to the marriage relationship. Are there laws concerning marriage? Yes. So I tell you what, I rarely beat my wife because it's against the law. I mean, it's against the law. So, you know, I don't want to break the law. Is that how we view our relationship with Christ? Is that your relationship? Well, so if, 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 I break, if I break the law, first of all, if that's your, if that's your mentality on the marriage relationship, your marriage is doomed anyway, right? And if that's your mentality on the relationship with Christ, I think that relationship is doomed as well. It's like, oh, he's, he's got all these laws, and I just got to make sure I don't, you know, I need to love him because he commands me to. I need to not beat my wife because that's the law. And that'll get us a good relationship. That'll give us a good marriage because I'm keeping the law. No, there's, there may be laws concerning marriage. But I love my wife. And that's a relationship. And so I'm looking at her and saying, I want to do what she wants. Right? I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. Because, I mean, look what he's done for me. He loves me. And I love him. And that's why we have this relationship. And am I going to mess that up? Yeah, I'm going to forget the birthday. Therefore, I'm no longer married. Until I, until I go and buy chocolates and flowers and come back and then, oh, now we're married again because I... I did, you know, did the procedure to get back in the marriage. It's the same way with Jesus. I love Jesus, and I'm trying to do what he wants me to do, and I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to do the wrong thing. But it's a relationship. And Jesus views that the same, the same way.
Yes, I am going to make mistakes. I'm going to mess up. And Jesus isn't going to say, well, sorry, we had this really nice thing going here, but you are out. Right. And uh, it really highlights uh, the arrogance that can creep in um, when you consider uh, the, the Pharisee versus the tax collector, the Pharisee was saying, I'm not like that guy, right? Um, and again, in the beginning of chapter 2, when he sets all this up, he says, you're showing contempt for the kindness that God has shown you when you look at somebody else and say, right? I'm glad I've got it all figured out, and I've got all the answers. And if anybody has any questions, I've got the answer. Um, just let me know, and I'll, I will guide you in that. Because... Though I am not they, they do all these things. And when you when you when we have that attitude, we are showing contempt for God's kindness. We're not recognizing our forgiveness and mercy. Exactly. Exactly. Lord. I think sometimes we think that Jesus just paid for our sins with his sin. He atoned for all of our sins, past, present, and future. As long as we're walking in faith, that blood covers us. It ain't, it ended right here because I sinned. Right. I don't quit walking in faith when I sin. I don't quit. It's like, oh no, messed up, I'm out. And now I've got to figure out how to get back in, get my light switch turned back on. That is not the way that relationship works with Jesus. So he goes on in the rest of this chapter and he's, he's answering those those arguments that they may come up with. Oh, well, we have the law. Well, we have circumcision. You know, and it gets into the back, that. You know, that was, that was one of the main things for them. It's like, oh, circumcision. Uh, they would even have sayings, you know, like, well, there's no, anybody that's circumcised will never end up in, you know, in hell because they're circumcised. That's what they thought of their actions and what it did for them. There's no relationship in that. Oh, I did the right thing. I can just sit back and, and that's going to get me in. But it is a relationship with Jesus that will save you. Thank you.